Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 193, part two of the Quickie Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and this is the second part of my interview with Paula Scher, designer, painter, and partner at Pentagram, working in the New York office. Now, if you have not listened to part one yet, head back one episode and check that out first. It leads into all of this stuff. It teases some of the stories and the lessons and things that we get into in this episode. And plus, it's damn entertaining to hear some of the great teachers and not-so-great teachers that she came across in her early days. During part two here, this is where we get into the nitty-gritty stories, the tough stuff, the experiences that she's been through where there was big lessons learned, and uh, she shares those with us. We talk about a Swatch Watch project that she was a part of that went great, and then three years later, not so great. She explains why. And actually, that project landed her in design history for not the right reasons, We also talk about how she joined Pentagram as the first woman partner and what that was like. We also talk about some recent situations and projects that she was a part of that got canceled and fell apart and how that makes her feel. She also shares with us a project that she is so proud to have been a part of and how Swiss Helvetica was the only font choice for this project and why. But she also shares the one project that she created that is out there in the world that she hates, and in her words, overtly hates. We also talk about the importance of print and print design, especially if you want to work at Pentagram. And we talk about how she deals with online criticism. Wow-wee, this is a good one. It is loaded, so let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, Paula Share. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? All right, Paula, the next couple of questions take you down part of your career where you've likely made some mistakes, learned some lessons, and I'm going to just pull you through some of that and share those stories and the lessons learned with the listeners. Um, In the end, I'll turn it around and we'll end in a happy place. What has been the most challenging time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through it? The most challenging time was when I was in my own business um, after I left CBS records and the, I had a business with my partner, Terry Coppell, and he was a magazine designer. And initially, we had a lot of success. Uh, we were um, considered what was called then retro designers. And we got a lot of work because of the kind of typography did we did because of a book we sent out called Great Beginnings, which was the style of, of uh, famous, it was, it was designed with famous, the beginnings of famous novels in the style in which they were written. Mm-hmm. 
and that we were successful almost immediately. And then I got record business work from it as well because I had been at CBS all those years, so so record companies came to me at that time. I designed the identity for Manhattan Records and did a lot of covers for Blue Note Manhattan. So I we, we grew very quickly in the early years, and Terry got new magazines that, that would be launched and invariably folded. In 1994, I designed this poster uh, for Swatch Watch. I began doing the advertising for Swatch Watch in 83, and we did a normal advertising campaign for it. And then I went into the Swiss headquarters of Swatch that was in the Swiss Embassy in New York City and saw all these Herbert Matter posters, called Muriel Matter, got a permission to use the posters and the ads and stripped watches into them, and they were, they were, they were on a woman's arm. And... They came out and they were they ran in Rolling Stone and, and in fashion magazines like Glamour and then there was a poster for stores. And about I would say nineteen eighty the poster came out in eighty four and about nineteen eighty seven people started criticizing it heavily. And I remember Tibor Kalman really knocked it at some design symposium and also all of a sudden I was really heavily criticized for this mass appropriation that some people called plagiarism, but it can't be plagiarism if you paid a permission to use the thing. So mm -hmm. it, it, like people, it was a parody, and it was done in the style of Herbert Matter deliberately because it was a Swiss company, and he did Swiss posters, and so there was a connection for it. I show this thing to students now because they read about it in history books, and they don't understand it because it's so absurd in relationship to the kind of appropriation that really exists now. It's a, it's a big nothing. But at the time, I was horrified by it. And it coincided, the, the worst period, I think, was 1988 or 89. And it coincided with the Gulf War and the recession. And our business fell apart. And I was still, people were still writing negative things about that piece. And it didn't matter what else I did. I was sort of labeled with it. Mm -hmm. I um, a woman came up to me not that long ago when I was speaking at some conference someplace and she said, you know, when I was in school, you were the only woman in the design history books and what they wrote about you was bad. You know, that because that, it was that it was that Swiss that swatch thing. Mm -hmm. And it also coincided with a scary fact that at the, the point of the worst part of it and the worst part of the recession, my partner left and went to work at Esquire because we weren't making any money. And largely it was because he had no magazines to design because they stopped making them in the recession. And I was still staying in the business. And I realized that I was never going to get better work than the work I was already getting. And that that I'd hit some level as a woman designer where I would never be believable as somebody they would hire to do a high paid job. And just when things were the darkest and I wasn't sure what to do, Woody Pirtle came over, who I knew, and he had lunch with me and he asked me if I'd be interested in joining Pentagram. And I there weren't any men there weren't any women partners then and I knew it would be really creepy. To do because it would be rough being the only woman partner because with the New York office and the London office it was about 15 or 17 men and me but I, I did it and the whole thing was I knew that I would never be able to go to the next level of, 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 as a designer as a woman on my own 
Now you could, but then you couldn't. And I, I did it and it changed everything. Wow. I like how you, you mentioned in there a number of times, you know, the perspective of being a woman in design back then and the differences now being the sort of leader in the design community that a lot of women look up to. What do you see are the differences back then to now where, you know, maybe things aren't easier for women to succeed, but are there, are there more opportunities? Well, I think that there are women you could name, you know, and that that helps. Mm-hmm. There were women you could name back then, but they disappeared. Um, you know, it's funny, there was a woman named C.D. Pinellas who, who was, you know, very important at Condé Nast and then the Dean of Parsons, and people rediscovered her like she wasn't a big deal, and now she's been resurrected. She was a big deal. I mean, and then, and she was one. She was the first woman to be inducted in the Art, Art Directors Club Hall of Fame. And she was the first woman member from the United States in AGI. So she was a big deal. Uh, there was Ruth Ansel and Bea Feitler, who were a generation younger, and they were editorial designers. And Bea died or young. She had cancer. And, and Ruth still works, but she wasn't, at a certain point, she wasn't getting the same kind of magazine leadership work that, that she had when she did, um, uh, she did, uh, not Vogue, she did Bazaar. She and, and Feitler did Harper's Bazaar. It's legendary. And, and she did some really incredible work for the Sunday New York Times Magazine uh, and went to Vanity Fair. I think she was the original art director of Vanity Fair when it launched. But the, these women had, had stellar careers, but they didn't seem to last long. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't seem to attain the same kind of visibility and power as men did. And that I think that's the wall that got broken down is that women can be as visible and as powerful as men. Not a lot of them yet, but it's a one by one process and it's growing all the time. I would agree. It's growing all the time on the show. I've had many, many very talented um, female designers and it's incredible. The work is incredible. Um, so I want to get a little bit more specific now, Paula. Can you take us to a design or project that you were a part of that did not go well or bring the desired result? What was that like? How did that feel? Can you take us to that story? Well, I actually have a story, but I can't tell you the client. No, nope. names are usually kept out for sure. Okay. I worked on something... Okay, I've had three experiences in a row where I've invested a huge amount of time into things that did not get made. Okay. And that there were two projects in particular that were last year that were really frustrating, and I felt like I should have known better. In one of the, and they both, they both involve politics in a way where I should have, I just should have been savvier. In one of them, the um, the woman, and I hate it was that it was a woman, but the woman who was theoretically promoted herself as the person who had the power in decision making and could put the project through the company was not really connected to her upper management at all. Um, they didn't they didn't listen to her, and I did not get to meet with them. So that I found out very late in the game that this terrific thing that we had designed and packaging we had done and worked on for that six months wasn't going to get made and that it wasn't going to get made because the president of the company 
hadn't seen it until the last minute and out and and ruled it out without me being able to walk him through to the decision that would get it made. Mm-hmm. Generally, I do a lot of work directly with the people who are the decision makers and that that here somebody said it didn't matter, even though I, I said, shouldn't we be showing this at an early time? She says, no, 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 he's, he's given me carte blanche and he hadn't. And I felt like a fool. I just felt, I felt completely like a fool. So, and, I, and I really liked the work. I mean, a lot of times I, I, we, I designed something and I, I'm just tired and the design isn't very good and somebody doesn't like it and they change it or they decide to do something else. I don't, that doesn't bother me. What bothers me is when I've done it and it's, I know it's terrific and I can't get it made. Mm-hmm. But on the heels of that, there was a, big, a bigger corporation where we went through the whole process. The president had not only seen it, they, he launched it himself at the board meeting but the, he didn't. He forgot to tell the founder of the company about it, and the founder of the company was very uncomfortable with it. And it's delayed, and I don't know if it's going to get made. I don't know if it's totally dead, but I, I don't know if it's going to get made. And the the horrible thing for me is it was a whole year of my life and an investment in it that goes way beyond what I'm getting paid. It isn't that what I got paid was small. I can't pretend like it was a low fee. It's that. The investment of bringing myself to the project and not having it made would be worse. You know, like I've had I've had situations where I've been stiffed on jobs, and there there was a it was a crummy job and a lousy fee, and I've been I forget those because I don't absolutely care. You know, because I have myself invested in it. But when I invest myself in something and it doesn't happen, I find it incredibly depressing, and. It's it's sad, and I can't I can't get over it. And I I, I you know like I, I really feel the wound from it for a long time, and I feel like how could I have let this happen? So in those moments, do you are there red flags that you see and choose to ignore, or is there just there's nothing and you're blindsided? There are probably red flags I should have ignored, but I don't know that I could have done anything about them. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do anything about them because I didn't have access to the. Uh, the politics of the thing, like I had let, usually if I'm driving the process very tightly, it's good. I do better in small companies than large companies. I do better in cor- uh, cultural organizations than I do in corporations. But I have to say that this one was a shock because the relationships seemed very good. And it was really not, it was just a fuck up. It wasn't, I have to say that on the radio. That's all good. Okay. Um, it was just, you know, the president forgot to tell the guy and nobody knew it. That, I, if you went into why the thing happened, what happened was not the president's fault. He's president of company. He's busy. It's a very big company. It's a, you know, it's a Fortune 500 company. He's president of the company. He was supposed to show the founder this thing. He wanted to show the founder the thing because he knew the founder. He forgot to do it. And then what he did is he, he forgot that he, he forgot to do it. And he showed it at the board meeting where the founder was there and saw it for the first time. So he's offended. I don't think that's the president's fault. I think it's the fault of the hierarchy, the company, because there's a traffic manager who went around on every step of the way and all the people that had to be shown and made sure that I went in and gave presentations or made sure they were shown to it some separate way. And because it's in one higher stratosphere, nobody was informed that he didn't show anybody. So that's that's sort of like the whole, the whole of, of hierarchies within corporations. And I find that 
almost every problem I have with corporations from the time I wrote Make It Bigger in 2002, where I talked about CPS records, it's always been the same thing, is that corporations are bad because corporations organize levels, and the levels do not communicate, and that somebody on the top winds up making a decision, doesn't have any clue about how anything happened along the way, or how they're supposed to behave in relationship to it, or how their staff feels about it, Nothing. And I, I hear when I speak at conferences and uh, there's a Q&A, the questions people always ask me are these kinds of business questions, like how do I get my boss to like it? Or I showed it to somebody and he didn't like it and it went someplace else. And here, you know, it wasn't that that happened to me, but it was still a thing where the president didn't show the damn thing to somebody and their feelings were hurt. And that's the end of it. And like, what do you do about that? What do you do about that? See, that's like asking, what do you do about human emotion? <laughs> There's nothing. <laughs> There's no answer. There's no answer. To <laughs> but but it really really the other thing the another thing that was depressing and this was also recently uh, was that I did a very big and important project for Disney and I cannot show it because uh-huh. you're not to work for Walt Disney. Uh-huh. They mean it's the legal department. It's the legal department. They just don't let you do it. Uh-huh. I'm actually reading the book um, about the Disney CEO right now, Bob Eager, Bob Iger. That's what it is. Oh, yeah. Is it good? Yeah, so far so good. I'm, I'm not a big reader, and I got halfway through it in a weekend. So, Wow. Yeah, with three kids, so I was invested. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Why was, was, it, why, why was it interesting? I find I'm most interested in the stories about how people get to – prominent positions. And it's part of what I enjoy so much about doing this podcast and talking to whether it's a designer that's been in the industry for two years and is just getting their teeth cut or, you know, somebody in a position like yourself or an Aaron Draplin. Like, I love hearing the stories and the little, the little interactions from mentors, from teachers, from parents, the little things they do that were seemingly minor at the time but had huge impact on their career and the way they make their decisions and how they got to where they are. So the book is kind of like that through circumstance, through hard work and through unique opportunities and unique interactions with others. He got to this position and it's, it's, you know, I just re- really invested in stories like that. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's a definitely a good one for sure. Um, so the last tough one, and then we'll turn it around and we'll get to the happy stuff. What, <laughs> what is something that you're struggling with in your design career right now? Well, my age. 27 is not old, Paula. Well, I, I'm becoming a little bit of a groundbreaker in an area I never thought I would be a groundbreaker. I mean, I am the oldest partner at Pentagram. Um, I have seen careers at Pentagram stop at about 62. I'm 71. Um, I don't know what to expect. I don't. I don't think about it all the time, but I think about it sometimes and more and more because I don't. I don't really have a game plan. Like I think I'm supposed to be deciding something. <laughs> I anything because I don't I don't I don't feel sick I don't feel old and I don't see any reason to change and I don't feel like I'm not doing any good work so I you know like I can't I can't say that I've lost any enthusiasm for it or I'm tired of it or I'm not getting the work or any of that so I just feel like 
huh? How did I get to be this age? (laughs) And you asked what I'm struggling with, that's it. And do you feel that that's sort of the perception of society that you should be making decisions? Or is that something that you're feeling? I think there's some expectation in that. And for me, what's what's tricky is the pentagram thing. I think if I had my own business now, when I was on my own, I would just do whatever I wanted to do. But I'm a pentagram, and I and my partners are now, you know, in their 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 30s, and I'm in my 70s, you know. And and I I don't feel weird about it. They don't seem to feel weird about me. But I, when I was when when I had joined, and the older partners all left, and they were in their they were in their early 60s when I was in my my early 40s, and they they went one by one by one. So at the the only partner that stayed till 70, which was Theo Crosby, died. Everybody else sort of they sort of left, so it's it's a strange it's a strange position to wonder if I'm supposed to do that, and I guess I'll know it when it happens. But I you know I think about it and I worry about it. You know, like I worry about whether or not that's the right thing to do, or should I be making some other plan? Or I mean, you know, but I didn't, and I haven't, and I probably won't. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, Paula, I'm going to turn this bus around for you. And I yeah, actually... Depressing, I think. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> um, I actually think this... Well, maybe it won't be. I, I have a hunch this might be a harder question for you to answer than any of the other ones. Um, tell us about a project that you have been a part of that you are the most proud of. One that just makes your heart sing. Well, there are many, to be honest with you. That's why I um, thought it'd be tough. And, you know, I mean, I can't deny my love of the public theater, which I've been doing for 25 years and just wrote a book about that's coming out in April. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is an incredible relationship. The work has highs and lows, um, but I'm proud of it all because I'm proud of the growth through it and everything I learned about identity design. I mean, it's sort of interesting when I just started designing the public theater, I was doing it to make big posters out on the street that I thought everybody would see. Most of the people who saw them saw them in annuals. They weren't out on the street. They couldn't afford much on the street. They had, they had them inside the public theater and a couple sniped on the street. And in the summer, they had this Shakespeare festival in the, in the subway. And over the period of the 25 years, I was trying to figure out how to get this place noticed. And what was terrible was that when we had a big hit on Broadway, which was bringing the noise, bringing the funk, and everybody knows what that looks like, everybody started imitating it. And, you know, the public didn't have very much money. So everything in New York looked like that. So the, it was like New York City ate the public theater's identity. So then I had to go and sort of recreate it again. And then I redesigned it when a new director came on. And then recently, the past, I guess it's now seven years, I realized the mistake I was making was to have it seen, it had to be repetitious because because the public has a million programs and a lot of plays. And that I realized that if I did everything in the same style for a season, you'd recognize a season, not necessarily an individual show, but this amazing thing happened that when I started doing it, the membership went up because people began to recognize the totality of the place. And now it's really an institution, and I feel I feel great about it. But actually, if you think about how people really see it, they go to the show, and they take a picture of the poster on their playbill, and they Instagram it. So I went from designing these really big things to really things that live in little spaces like that. <laughs> so that, That's what that was. 
So when you're designing for that, do you now have a little bit of a thought of like, what would this look like on Instagram? Nah, screw Instagram. It was always big type. It can't look bad on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. Totally true. It's not like I'm designing a lot of text. So that's another great example of, because I ask all my guests this question, and I would say 90% of the time, the project that they are the most proud to have been a part of is not the biggest name company they've worked for. It's not the biggest paycheck that they received from working with the company. It has been the one for the nonprofit down the street that they did comp work for. It was for the food bank that they helped increase donations for. Like it was the stuff from the heart, designed from the heart. And it sounds like that's a very similar case for you. Well, all of my work was like that. I was going to say the the other project I'm, I'm really proud of and I'm really redoing right now to degrees the High Line. Um, I designed the logo for it for free. Um, but then I worked for them for uh, until it launched. Then, then they developed an in-house art department, and I would consult occasionally. And now what happened was I did all the signs for the High Line, and the signs for the High Line were designed to be fairly invisible. They worked on, on, um, on a low level. They were on railings, or they were in the ground. And all the vegetation grew up around them, and nobody can see them. And nobody- <laughs> They're on. So now I got to go back and make ver- vertical. You know, we're resigning the whole place. You know, we we re- I think we worked on the signage in uh, maybe 2006 to 2008 when it opened, and now we're going back and doing the whole thing all over again. My logo is 20 years old, um, and they changed it. They won't touch it. It, it exists, and the the signage is going to be the same type style that we designated, and that stays. But we got to go and. Figure out how you get seen after all those trees. Not only that, there are you know, Hudson Yards open, and that's this huge development place, and there are a million people on there, and they're confused, and they don't know where to go, even though the thing goes one way or another way. They still need signs. So that, that's a project I really love and, and that I love being involved in. Um, there are, you know, I love, I've, I've had wonderful work and great clients. I mean, I was very lucky to be in the record industry for 10 years and to learn uh, as a very young designer. I was, you know, started in that industry when I was 23. Uh, and I made hundreds of record covers that still are around someplace. And that in the 80s, I was lucky to do these youth-oriented businesses. And at Pentagram, I've just been able to work with so many wonderful not-for-profits and museums, and, and I really like them all. And um, I have some nice work right now, so I'm happy. Beautiful. I love that you're happy there. The as, What I find really interesting is a lot of my guests came to design through music through the music industry, whether that was playing in a band or working for a record store. And it's all started with a poster or it all started with a basic CD cover or a t-shirt design for a show or something like that. And by doing that, they realize I really enjoy this. This is really cool. People are reacting and interacting with my work and that just flicked a switch for them. It does. I mean, you may, that you make a thing and it goes out into the universe. And, you know, in this in the 70s, when I was a record cover art director, there was no marketing. I mean, they didn't ch- test anything or look at the thing. You made it and it went out into the universe. It was all over the world. It was global. I mean, the things are still around. Any record I say that I designed, whether I like it or not, you say the name, you, 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 you know, type it into your Google and your my image comes up. 
images that are 45 years old. I, I mean, I hate the Boston cover, and everybody knows what it is. I mean, I'll never get away from that. Yeah, I was literally just about to ask you, is there one piece or maybe two that are out there that you see every once in a while and go, oh, Paula, what were you thinking? Well, the Boston cover, there's nothing that comes close to that. You know, I mean, there are things that I wish I had done a little bit dinner. The Boston cover I overtly hate. And I hate it even more because it seems to be the one everybody knows. And I, I was, I was um, listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me about a year or two ago. It, I designed the cover in 1976. And I was listening two years ago to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on National Public Radio. And there's a, a talk show host named Peter Sagel. And he makes up fake questions and that the audience, the uh, guests have to figure out which question is fake or real or something like that. I'm probably not telling you right. And apparently one of the questions centered around the earth blowing up and spaceships leaving the earth. And he said, you know, like the Boston cover. No. And, you know, and it was 2018, and they <laughs> used Boston cover as an, you know, it's an analogy for this thing, and it doesn't make any sense. Why would anybody know what that is? You know, like why doesn't that die? Why doesn't that go away? And it's never going to die or go away. It's just going to be there. And I, you know, my team put this here. <laughs> beautiful <laughs> they put it there as just they, a... they went out and bought it it's got a broken record inside it <laughs> <laughs> it just shows your impact on the world Paula well that may be it there was a guy in the, in the 70s when I did the cover you know what he said to me he says you know when you die your tombstone's going to say design the Boston cover <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, you have to have a sense of humor when you, somebody says that. <laughs> well, but, I, you know, I, what I think is, is fascinating is we forget about how we forget, how we, how we influence culture and mm -hmm. what we remember. I know from the public theater work and the work I did for other institutions in New York, people will call up and they want to buy a poster for me. And it's usually something... I designed that was out on the street, and you find out, why do you like that one? And I always think, oh, maybe I did, they like the way I did the type on that. And really what you find out is, oh, that's when I first moved to New York and I met my husband, or that's, that's where we had our first date, or that's where, you know, and the people have the emotional connections to a thing they saw at a specific moment in time, and, and that becomes unshakable. Um, so in this, in this sort of digital design world that we're living in, Paula, do you... <clears throat> Where do you feel the relevance and importance of print and packaging sits in this space? Like, do designers still need to know that? Sure. Still exists. Mm -hmm. Everybody's saying print is dying and dead for the, uh, you know, past million years. I mean, I read, the, I read the New York Times online. I don't buy the newspaper every day except for Sunday because I like it. But, I, you know, I think that, that things, there are some things that just work better in print. You know, if you don't live in a city, you don't see how much stuff actually exists out on the street. If you walk around New York City or you go to LA and you look at the billboards or what's out there, it's a phenomenal amount of stuff. There are banners, there are bus shelters, there are things that are sniped on walls, there are signs. I mean, that stuff is not virtual. It's there. It's real. Sometimes it even moves. Mm -hmm. But 
people are making that all the time. And then there are things that are that exist only online. The things that exist only online are can be memorable, especially if you see them repetitively. But a lot of them disappear. Things that street last. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that younger designers are missing the the <laughs> understanding of print design and the intricacies of it? Not the ones that work at Panagram. Love it. I like that. <laughs> No, I think it's where you work. If you work, if you work completely on a, it, you know, on building and changing and updating a website, you might you might see the world through that lens. We design websites, but we don't maintain them every day. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not you know everybody's sitting on a computer doing work. I can see out, and I'm a chef. Sorry, there, you can't turn the camera in, into this direction because there's a whole room full of people working, and there's stuff on screens. And you see the screens all the time and the building and stuff on the screens. But some of the things live online. Some of the things are public spaces. Some of the things are identity. They get used on myriads of product, mm-hmm. whether it's packaging or whether it's whether it's um, some kind of magazine or, or publication or book. Those things exist. Mm-hmm. People actually make books. Definitely. Well, Paula, have you reached the point of the show for the ask it forward question? It's one of my favorite parts. That's where I have a question for you from my last guest, and you get the opportunity to ask a question of my next guest. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but you can ask them anything. Okay. Now, what I love about doing this is when I have a well-known designer on after somebody, and I say, you know, you're not going to know who you're asking this question of. They have no frame of reference. They have nothing that they can tie to your career or certain projects that you're known for. So they're just shooting in the dark. Okay. So this question comes from Johnny Black and Richard Roach from Cast Iron Design out of Boulder, Colorado. Um, they have done some really, really cool things recently, like uh, a print project where they used kelp ink for printing a booklet for Patagonia. Um, there's just some really cool stuff that they've done. And they wanted to ask you, what is the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened to you? Oh, dear. Don't say the quickie podcast, please. No, I, it's very difficult. For, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember. So much embarrassing stuff has happened to me. I'm rarely embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, 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 there's got to be a story that <laughs> this one, but I want. <laughs> <laughs> you have to share it now, Paula. It's out there. Oh, this is really terrible. I don't know if I can tell you this. I don't know if I can tell you this publicly. It had to do with. Um, no, I can't. I'm sorry. It just had to do. I will. I will tell you the parameter of it, but then not the specifics. If you say it out loud and it sounds bad, I edited it. I a speech when I really had a pee. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave that there. But nobody knew. It was a great talk. Perfect. <laughs> So when, when you're about to actually, it just made me think of something else. When you're about to go out and give a talk to a large crowd of people, do you still get nervous? How do you prepare for that? Or do you just go out there and go for it? I'm really nervous about it. I don't, I, you know, I've been doing this so long. I, I've probably spoken more than a normal designer in the same, in the same arena, largely because for so much of my career, I was, I, there, were, there were only a couple of women so that there would be a panel and they'd have to get a woman. So, you know, I would get a call, why would you do this? It's really hard to get a woman speaker. You know, that was a lot of my life. So I, I ended up speaking more than, than most people. 
April Griman and I are the same age, and we met each other for the first time on stage, where we heard each other's name at, at an AIJ conference, and we bent down and looked at each other and waved. We never had met each other because they would only get one woman, generally. So how would I meet another woman? Yeah. Wow. Right there, they would just get their obligatory woman. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I actually have two Ask It Forward questions for you. Um, because I let one of my previous guests, uh, one of my friends, know that I was interviewing you in a couple of days, and he said, please, please, please ask this question. Um, so this one comes from Joshua Ariza. He's a commercial artist and uh, owner of Chomp Brand. And he wanted to ask you specifically, Paula, you know, with Pentagram having the name that it does, everybody knows Pentagram and the work that comes out of Pentagram. How do you handle online criticism when there's so many people out there with an opinion? Well, I, you know, I've, I've become inured to it. I've had, I've had so much bad criticism and proven wrong. They're, they're often proven wrong. Like I remember when I first designed uh, the new school in Parsons, which is still one of my favorite identities and it launched and everybody trashed it and they trashed it and they trashed it and they trashed it and I was terrible blah, 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 and they had me, Parsons had me come down and answer mean tweets and stuff. I mean, it was just this, this, this unending nastiness. And then this funny thing happened. The, the kids in the school, the seniors who really hated it, graduated and they went away. And the next generation was just totally fine with it. And that was <laughs> their identity. Reactions to things online are reactionary because it's exactly what you're doing. You're looking at it and generally your response is negative because something you like may have changed or you just may be dissing the famous designer, which is sometimes the other case of it. It could be dangerous to client situations. Like if clients come across it, they can wonder, it's bad for design. The design community really shouldn't do it. It's really irresponsible. there are sites that are responsible about it, and there are sites that aren't. Um, the thing to do is the people that run the sites really should take take out like overtly nasty or personal comments. You know, I mean, saying this sucks is not a serious review. No, I mean, really, really stupid. And I can't figure out why people go there. I don't know what that. I don't know if it's a frustration that they don't have enough work or they. It's a pure thing that goes on, but it seems not great. It's not great for design. Mm-hmm. For me, for me personally, you know, when when my identity for Windows launched in 2012, I couldn't go out of the house for a week. You know, like <laughs> I can't get any worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> can't get worse than that. Yeah, I just like sort of like you're. I'm amazed at at how over the top it can get and how intensively involved people are in it. And that part I think is interesting about design. People seem to desperately care about whether or not a logo is redesigned or not. But, but uh, you know, the criticism part is, is serious if it makes it difficult to design. That anything that makes it difficult for a designer to work and be able to work and be able to make their clients less fearful is bad. Mm-hmm. Period. So have you ever had somebody come up to you on the subway and say, hey, that logo you did? I don't like it. Yeah. Have you really? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite like that, but after abstract, yes, everybody knew who I was. 
So, so people would people do come up to me and say things. So they're not, not usually like that. Yeah. Or I didn't, they might say, "I really like this one. I don't like that one that much." Yeah, they'll say stuff like that. And you say, "Thanks. Can I get back to my lunch now?" <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes one woman came running over to me and said, "You're Paula Shear, aren't you?" And I said, "Yeah." And she says, "I like your shoes." <laughs> I thought, okay. That's the kind of feedback you want. <laughs> that's, that's sort of what they do. <laughs> Beautiful. Paula, you have reached the end of the Quickie Podcast. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate it. Take care. All right. That is the end of episode 193, part two, the second half of my interview with Paula Share. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time. And if you like what you're hearing on the Quickie Podcast here, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, and please leave a rating and a review for the show. I'd really appreciate it. Have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow.